as consumers, we win tenfold. Uh, the animals win a thousandfold. Uh, the environment wins. Everybody wins when, when plant-based products supplant animal-based products. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saber. Hi, and welcome to episode six of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. My name is Jerry Saver, and in this podcast, I get to sit down with the people who are taking us into a plant-based future and introduce you to them. Now, I'm really excited about today's show because the inspiration for the Plant-Based Entrepreneur, it came in large part from the creation of a venture capital firm called New Crop Capital. And today I'm talking to Chris Kerr, who is one of its founders and its investment manager. So Chris... Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no, thank you, because it's really awesome to have you here. And I really hope we have time for all the questions that I want to ask you. Looking forward to it. I'll do the best I can. Well, to get right into it, the first thing I wanted to ask was, who are you and what was your personal and professional path? Like if we just go right back to, let's say, your birth and take it from there. Sure. Well, that's that's easy. So I, uh, you know, I actually at the age of seven, uh, my family moved out to the country, and my first job was uh, cleaning the udders on the cows of the dairy farm next to me at seven years old. And uh, so I grew up around animals. I've always had um, an affinity for them. But you know, growing up in the farm country, um, animals were uh, had a utility utility uh, purpose. And so it wasn't until I kind of, you know, I always had animals in my life in some form or another, but it wasn't until I, I met my very beautiful wife at age of 33, uh, where she, um, she's a much better person than I am. And so she understood kind of the role that, that animals played in this world and that they indeed had their own uh, unique set of interests. And then uh, by all means, I should be considering their interests, not just mine. And so it was sometime uh, soon thereafter, um, you know, I had had a background in entrepreneurship. I'd started several companies uh, starting at an early age, uh, exited a few of them. And about the time in my early 30s when, you know, my wife and I um, became a couple, that's when we decided that, you know, maybe it's time we kind of reevaluate how I am utilizing my kind of business skills and, and putting them towards a mission, putting them towards uh, something that was near and dear to us. And so as I started exiting out uh, several companies, uh, we decided that uh, collectively we would focus on kind of returning that capital in a way that um, could be uh, better aligned with our long-term goals in life. And so that's when we started looking at uh, ways of investing into uh, commerce that would affect change um, more for the global society, but also satisfying some of my own personal needs, such as my need for vegan cheese uh, was one of the reasons that I got into this space in the first place. Um, so yeah, so that was in my mid thirties and um, uh, you know, I happened to be friends with uh, the CEO of the Humane Society. I knew a bunch of the people that worked there. And so I'd actually ask them, you know, kind of what they were doing for mission-related investments, and if there was something that I that I could be doing personally uh, to be reallocating my own funds in that space. And they said, "Well, we're not doing anything at the at the moment. Why don't you come down and talk to us about it?" And so that was how I got engaged with the Humane Society. I spent uh, seven years there, uh, helping uh, companies, mentoring companies um, in in mostly in the food space, but in all areas of mission-related investing around protecting animals. Um, and using innovation to to 
to advance that cause. And so that was that was a, a good solid eight years there, seven, eight years there that I spent uh, really shaping um, how mission-related investing would work in this space. And um, ultimately that led me to New Crop Capital and the Good Food Institute and the work that I'm doing there today. All right. So what, what kind of businesses were you involved with before you got started with that? Um, I had, uh, you know, my very first company was when I was 12 years old. I had a landscaping company and, um, you know, I sold that to my partner at 18 and at uh, 19 or 20, I guess it was, I started a construction management firm, which uh, my partner now runs today. It's been going for 25 some years now. Um, I have a software company in Boulder, Colorado that I've uh, helped um, seed back in the mid 90s. Um, yeah, it's been basically I love I love creating things from scratch and I love the idea of creating enterprise that allows people to put food on their own tables and uh, creating jobs. And so I ended up getting into um, the logistics business. I had an environmental services company called um, Oxus and Stericycle or Sterologic and I sold both of those to a company called Stericycle. And once I exited out of those, they were in the medical waste business. Once I exited out of those, um, I decided that everything going forward from that point uh, would be more have an animal bent to it. And so that's how I got here. And your wife and cheese were the primarily reasons for, for getting into that's it. That's right. I, I can My totally wife is one of these people that has a better, a better uh, global perspective on the world we live in and the intersectionality uh, with the decisions we make on a day-to-day -day basis. I needed a little grooming in that sense. And so she's a much better person than me, but hopefully at the end of the day, she, she helps bring me along uh, on her path. And she's just been enormously uh, helpful for me uh, personally, obviously. Hey man, I, I can totally relate to that. I mean, I've got just a couple years of head start on you in, in that aspect because I met my wife when I was uh, 29, but uh -huh. it, it was exactly the same for me. So she, <laughs> she, she was good, the one good. who opened my eyes yep. to, to everything that's going on. Yep. So New Crop Capital and the Good Food Institute, which, which one came first? Well, for me, I thought it was New Crop Capital, but in fact, it was the Good Food Institute. And, the, and, and they both kind of came about as, as one general concept, which is we have all of these tools that we can use to advance our cause. And we try to change hearts and minds, um, try to appeal to empathy, uh, to, to get people to treat animals better. We try to make regulatory changes and educate. Um, but there's this one tool that we've had, which is uh, innovation in commerce that works a lot quicker than all of those things. And so if you can break down the barriers to long-term sustainable change by just solving people's very short-term needs, uh, that's pretty critical when you're, when you're thinking about how fast innovation can change the market space, whether it's going from, you know, a, a Sony Walkman to an iPad or an iPod, you can see how quickly innovation can change a marketplace. And so when you looked at the Good Food Institute and you looked at early stage investing, uh, those two things are really hand in glove. And it's one thing to take, make an investment in an early stage company. But the one thing I found in it working for the Humane Society was that unless there's a very large mentoring component um, to these early stage investments, you know, there's a lot of hurdles that, that entrepreneurs need to go through that aren't really part of the pitch deck. And it can be something as simple as, you know, the roof on their office is leaking to negotiating a real estate deal to trying to figure out legal terms to all of a sudden needing to know how to format a spreadsheet and a balance sheet. Those little things, those little tasks really help define a company that, that looks ready for institutional investment and one that isn't. 
And so the Good Food Institute, I really have a dual purpose. Um, part of my job is the entrepreneur residence in the Good Food Institute. And that is really mentoring these companies, cultivating them, preparing them um, to kind of grow up, if you will. The other half of that tool is occasionally they'll need money. And so while the Good Food Institute will, will really work with any uh, food company that can help you know, change our, transform our, our agri-economy, agri, agri um, New Crop Capital really is about the transactional side. What can we do to bring capital into the equation to help advance that cause and help these companies grow quicker and be more effective because of it? So at one side of the equation, I really serve as a trusted advisor. And then at some point, I switch over to actually having to negotiate a transaction and gearing these companies up for receiving more capital. And I say I really do spend a lot of time, um, I'd say, sitting on the same side of the negotiating table. I, I, we, we really are a, a, a entrepreneur-friendly venture capital fund. We really do invest for the long haul. New crop capital is has no lifespan. It's not a very traditional venture capital fund in that sense, um, in that we can invest for 100 years if we need to. Um, and, in fact, we can take a very, very long approach to that. The Good Food Institute, on the other hand, um, really looks at the much broader implications of, of uh, transit, transforming the food industry. And so it's not just about can we start companies and will they succeed, but how can we foster innovation? How can we find white spots where there are underserved markets? Uh, what do we need to solve in the reg with regulatory hurdles and FDA and um, things along those lines? And, and making sure that there's a mentor inside the Good Food Institute that can help these entrepreneurs and founders and their teams all along the way. It's, it's one of the most, I'd say it's for me, certainly in my in the last 20 years of my life, it's been the most important uh, kind of collaboration between capital and mentoring that I've ever seen. And um, I have to say it's been in, in ridiculously successful uh, just in the short six months that we've been around, seven months that we've been around. Uh, we've we've just uh, managed to garner a lot of influence because of the the dual purpose of those two entities. Yeah, well, part of that influence was also the the show that you're on right now. Just like I said, so thank you <laughs> for like that. I like that. Very <laughs> Thanks good. for that. But um, one thing that I really wanted to ask about Good Food Institute and New Crop Capital was: were they conceived together? Like, are, are they twins, or did one actually yeah. the idea get started without the other? Well, they're the brainchild of Nathan Runkle and, and Nick Cooney. And, you know, Nick Cooney really comes from a place of how can we do the most good with the least amount of money we have? Now, we're a $25 million fund, and we want to transform a, a, a $1 trillion industry uh, or more than that. You know, just, just meat, dairy, and eggs is about a trillion dollars worldwide. So, how can a $25 million fund transform that kind of industry, right? That's a major undertaking. And so, looking at, um, what can we do to help bolster that? It really was two sides of that. It wasn't just about creating capital, but it was about creating a pathway for these companies. But it was also about creating an entry ramp for other people interested in this space to participate. And so the very first thing I did, literally, I think it was the first call that I made um, when I was um, accept, agreed to take the job at New Crop was to um, another investor in this space, the very similar ideals called Stray Dog Capital. And the idea being that, you know, 
if we can put in a dollar and they can put in a dollar, well, that's $2. And who else might we be able to bring to the equation, right? And so what started off as two of us kind of paying attention to this space, we now have about um, over a dozen investors who specifically are focusing on this type of mission-related investment, and that number is growing. Uh, the amount of capital that's coming into the space is growing because of that. But it wouldn't have just been me throwing out a shingle as new crop capital. It really required kind of a bigger organization pushing behind it. And I think that's where uh, the idea that a nonprofit being affiliated with it was very important. If you go back historically and you look at um, mission-related investment, there's a type of investing called uh, community development venture capital. And basically what that is, is a venture capital setup that's around job creation, right? So their mission is creating jobs in typically distressed localities. And so what you would have is a pool of capital that would help found companies in a particular geographical region, but then they would actually set up a nonprofit that would do training and mentoring and help you know, align uh, maybe veterans in a business arena uh, with entrepreneurs. And this is a very similar model and that would take people that have um, know a lot about the food space and it can be very influential on that food space as the nonprofit side. And then on the investment side, we have capital uh, allocated for that, not just new crop, but the rest of our syndicate. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Nice. So what, what kind of venture capital do you normally provide? I mean, at, at what stage do you normally fund the companies? Sure. So we are, because we're a small fund, we are... Um, seed and early stage investors. And so we'll do anything right out of um, starting from scratch. Uh, so we will take white spaces that are completely underserved and we will fund a little bit of money to, to do a little research around that and see whether there's uh, a thesis that can be developed. And then once that kind of proves itself out, uh, then we can actually look at doing the seed investment. We typically do kind of a preferred series seed investment or some type of a convertible note. Uh, right into Series A. Now, the big risk with series, with this type of early stage investing is getting companies to grow up to the point where they can attract someone who, who write, might write that $2 million check or $3 million check, where we will typically not invest more than a half a million dollars into any one deal in any given year. Um, there's a lot of firms that just, quite frankly, have too much money to deploy and so they can't be doing it in $250,000 increments. They need to be doing it in four, five, $10 million increments. So we seed stage investors play a really important role in um, kind of helping these companies along and preparing them uh, for later rounds of investment. And so one of the things that I focused on right out of the gate was creating a portfolio ecosystem that would allow companies to kind of go from zero to maybe five to $10 million in sales uh, through funding, um, not just the innovation side, but making sure that they have production capacity, that they have distribution, which is another very, very key important part that we focus on is it's great to have production, but if you can't get your products around the globe and there's underserved markets, then, you know, you're just going to kind of be spending money on production and not going anywhere. And then once that product actually gets onto the shelves, it's wonderful if you can secure a contract with, you know, Costco, but unless people are actually buying the product, it won't stay there for very long. So we, we, we want to invest in production, distribution, and then driving traffic. And that little ecosystem is pretty much the pool that we swim in, uh, in hopes that a bigger fish comes along and can take it from there. And we will go on to the next early and seed stage investment. Yeah, the, the whole shebang, basically. Until the whole shebang. Finished. But it is, you know, a lot of companies don't realize that... Um, 
you really do want to have a specialized area. There's there's the CEO that can take a company from zero to five million in sales might be a completely different CEO that takes it from five to 20 and another CEO that takes it from 20 to 100 and, and so on. And so having that sweet spot, recognizing your strengths in there um, and then being willing to hand off the baton is really an important part of the success of a lot of these companies. And so some of the grooming that we do is is letting them know jo- not just our limitations as investors, but their limitations as uh, as a talent pool and making sure that we're bringing people on that can help bolster that so that they can uh, recognize uh, very rapid growth, which is ultimately what we're hoping for. Okay. And what kind of companies and what kind of founders are, are you looking for for your seed investments? So we want, so first of all, very strict mandate for us. We want, we're going after share of stomach of, of, replacing animal-based products with plant-based products, right? And so when you think about consumers, uh, the term share of stomach really kind of implies that people aren't eating more, they just get to choose one thing or another, right? And so if I can put a plant-based product where traditionally a piece of chicken might sit, well, that's a win for me, right? And so we're going after that kind of share of share of stomach in the idea that we can, we can, we can push that, that, um, that market up, make, make that market build from plant-based alternatives. And so we are looking really specifically at transforming kind of the worst offenders, if you will, in the, in the agri space. In this case, it's chicken and eggs, uh, dairy and seafood, or, um, uh, beef and seafood. And uh, dairy is in there as well. And we actually look at, uh, given again, the very small amount of money that we look at, that we deal with, we look at how can we most effectively put that to use to cover a couple different things. One is um, clearly animal suffering. That's That would be that would be a, a pretty big one for us, given our mandate. Um, but also things like climate change and land and water degradation, you know, health, you know, are we are we helping the planet or hurting it and, and our intention is to help it um, but if you look at the general intersectionality um, of a lot of the things that ail us in this world uh, a lot of them really do end up as a bullseye on our plate and you know meat dairy and eggs are one of the biggest things that actually crosses over I mean if I were to tell you to find me an investment a one single investment that would reduce carbon emissions make people healthier, get rid of land and water degradation issues and eliminate suffering for animals. I don't know of anything else that would do that would do that. Right. Uh, Maybe buying a bicycle, maybe being in the bicycle business, but that's not scalable. But food does. And food is a decision that's made every single day. And so we really want to focus on food uh, as an investment sector and trying to change um, sustainable behavioral change. And so for us, it's a long-winded answer of a way of saying we're going after the meat, dairy, and egg alternative space, which is mostly plant-based, and then also clean cultured meat, dairy, and eggs as well. What about in terms of personalities and skills of the people behind those companies? Yeah, so we're looking for something that's novel. Um, you know, when we talk about parity, what, what we're ultimately looking for is taste, price, and convenience. And so if you can bring something to the table that enhances or brings the market, raises all the the market up to those levels, that would be good for us. So innovation uh, and and novelty is absolutely critical to us. Um, And then if you have some type of IP, intellectual property that can be protected, that we know that we can actually, you know, monetize in some way, that's certainly of benefit to us. So that would be something along 
um, the the innovation side. So there's two different sides. When I when I think about um, disruption, you've heard the term disrupting a market, right? Well, disruption to me is about taking things that already exist and putting them together in a different way. So if you think about Uber, you know, it wasn't that mobile phones didn't exist or taxis didn't exist or GPS didn't exist, but assembling them in that way is what disrupted that industry. And so we're in some cases, we want to take things that already exist in this world and put them together differently. In this case, it might be ingredients, you know, plant-based ingredients. And sometimes it'll be innovation, which is really making a discovery. And that's where really, you know, kind of the clean cultured meat, dairy and eggs kind of come into, into play is, is making sure that the talent in those teams has the ability to, to bring those companies to fruition. Yeah. Um, just since you mentioned Uber, how different is the food tech sector compared to, let's say, the technology space in general? Like, what are some of the similarities and what are the biggest differences between a company that's developing some sort of disruptive software platform and a startup mm -hmm. that's creating a burger from plant protein or growing cheese from yeast? Yeah, I think I think one of the reasons that that the technology world does so well is because you kind of reach a limit of scaling, right? When you invent a certain piece of software or something, there's no really scaling issues uh, there. It's when you start getting into hard capital costs that, that that becomes very problematic. And if when you're looking at food production, sooner or later, it's not in the cloud, right? You actually have to produce food and put it on somebody's plate. So there's very hard, hard scalable issues there. And so we're talking about clean meat. At some point, you're going to have basically breweries or factories that are going to be producing a lot of this product and that costs real, real money. Um, and so I think ultimately what you're really looking at is that scalability issue. That's one of the reasons why food companies don't trade for 10 times sales, right? They trade for somewhere between two to three times sales. That's, that's a reasonable number because ultimately the margins inside food are, are going to be pretty razor thin. And unlike technology where you can have margins of 90, 95%, uh, food, you might be anywhere from, from 5% to 20% would be a comfort zone, depending on whether it's a commodity. Uh, that makes it a little more problematic in investing in this space. Uh, the good news is that there is a ton of pent up demand, uh, for these types of products. I, you know, it's, it's true. All ships are rising right now in the plant-based food sector. Um, not only is the demand there, but it's not even being met. And so while in the United States, lots of innovation is happening, you outside the United States, you can go into, into the UK where the word vegan was invented and they have a dearth of products. They have nothing compared to what we have here in the United States. If you go to Europe, it's a lot less than what we have. And so the fact is all over the globe, there's very, very innovative products, but they actually have to move from place to place. You know, they don't go up into the cloud and they get downloaded somewhere. They actually have to move logistically from, from one freezer to somebody's oven to somebody's plate. And I think that's probably the, the biggest difference is that, um, you know, versus the technology space where, you know, innovation does have those margins, you're just not going to get it in the food, in the food side. Yeah. And um, that's one other big area that I want to talk about. But first, um, what about low tech food companies compared to high tech food companies? Just just sure. to give you an example, like you, you worked with Miyoko's Kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd consider them more low tech in terms that their cheese is actually made in the kitchen, whereas that company mm -hmm. that's growing cheese from yeast that's being done in the lab. So who who has the advantage here? Well, yeah, so that's that's what you call barriers to entry, right? And so um, 
right now, you know, Miyoko's is a phenomenal product, but theoretically somebody else could make that their own product in their kitchen if they could figure out one or two little one one or two little tricks. Now, uh, barriers to entry still come up with things like can you produce a, a factory, right? Can you actually distribute products? So there's other barriers to entry that come in. Um, in the kind of the higher tech realm, a barrier to entry is actually patents, right? Can you patent something that would keep somebody else out of that business for 17 years? And and so you look at these investments, and we'll act, we actually do look at those those uh, barriers to entry as part of our risk portfolio, a risk profile. And so somebody who has a trade secret as a barrier to entry means that there's a good chance that somebody else may be able to find a workaround or get close to it and maybe even be able to improve on it. Um, and so we, we are a little cautious about that when looking at investments. Um, but there's also such things as first mover advantage um, and, and uh, a couple other tricks that you can use to make sure that you're that you're getting out in front of everybody else. But certainly low tech and high tech, there is a difference between the two. We do look at both. Uh, it's part of our due diligence is figuring out um, from a risk profile standpoint uh, where these companies land. Uh, and if you have very high barriers to entry and you've had a discovery that's patentable, you can guarantee that your valuation on that company is going to be a lot higher than a company that might be a little bit lower. Right. Thanks. So now to, to get into the global issues, uh, you just returned from Israel, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing really good things about it. So is it on yeah. its way to becoming the first vegan nation in the world? I can't speak to that, but I can tell you when it, when it comes to innovation, they have got something worked out there. Basically, as I, from what I could tell, the entire country is one big incubator. And I don't know whether you're familiar with the, with the Japanese term karetsu, but basically, you know, a karetsu is, is set up as a way to assure success. You have people who already control major parts of industry and they're agreeing to work together. And what I found in Israel is that they were very, very collaborative. So it isn't just one company going out there and trying to rule the world. It's really about, okay, this is what I bring to the table. If I work with you, XYZ company, I get your distribution channel, let's work together, right? And that's a very wonderful environment to be in. Um, you know, collaboration, I would say collaboration is probably one of the fastest ways of success that's out there. I think, um, you know, a lot of people think of collaboration as also dilution, meaning that they're giving up control or they're giving up some of the profits. But, you know, Ultimately, a collaborative company can actually grow probably four or five times faster. You look at what, what Dean Foods did to Silk Soy Milk as an example. Now, they invested very early stage into that company back in 1996, I believe it was. And the moment that Dean Foods made that investments, White Wave was able to plug into their distribution channel. And that changed the plant-based dairy world forever. We're talking about an industry that's thousands of years old and now has been transformed to the point where nine percent of all dairy isn't even coming from cows like that's that's pretty massive so that collaboration allowed that to happen very very quickly and i look at israel and kind of how they've set that up and the way industry works with government and works with innovators and entrepreneurs it's it's a remarkable place silicon valley has a very similar setup um it's, you know, it's incestuous to some degree. I think, you know, Israel, they, they, they certainly know how to work with each other. And they also know how to cross, cross the pond, too. I mean, they, they have relationships 
uh, with um, Pepsi and Estee Lauder and, and, and companies like that that want to take those innovations inside of Israel and move them out across the globe. And that's going to be everybody's going to benefit from those types of those types of relationships. Yeah. Now, if we hop even a bit further, China, it's the largest or second largest economy in the world, depends on how you look at it. And they're definitely a huge player in driving demand for animal products. So what are mm -hmm. your thoughts on the Chinese market? Is it moving in the right direction? Is it moving fast enough? And most importantly, what's the potential there for, for plant-based foods? Well, I think the potential is massive if it's done correctly. And you know, one nice thing about China um, is that un decisions can be made semi-unilaterally. Unilaterally. And so it's not like you have to go in and negotiate with a bunch of different retailers when in fact a single buyer from a single department of the Department of Health can probably change the eating patterns for close to a billion people, right? So there are opportunities there if you know how to navigate it. We don't have the skill set to do that inside New Crop Capital and the Good Food Institute, but we certainly want to work with people who are of influence in that area. Um, I think that, you know, for good or bad, you know, China has had some issues around um, meat consumption and the rise of that. They've also seen an absolutely perfectly correlated rise in diabetes during that same period of time, right? So they they do have the ability to recognize that and make really high-end decisions around how to adjust that. So for them to actually come out with a statement recently saying we need to reduce our meat consumption, that actually they can actually they can actually pull some levers to make that happen. Here in the United States, we have a whole department of the United States Department of Agriculture whose sole purpose is to sell more meat, to sell more dairy. Now, that's their mandate. And they do it in contrary to what's their best interest. So while you've got the Department of Health and NIH trying to fight diabetes and heart disease, on the one hand, you've got, on the other hand, them trying to promote cheese and put it inside the crust of Pizza Hut pizza. I mean, it's nonsensical that they don't that they don't work in tandem. And I think in China, the real opportunity there is to for them to recognize some of the impacts that they have on changing um, their entire population by by dietary changes and, and actually making some pretty broad changes, uh, pr pretty broad decisions about how to affect that change. So there's a I think there's a phenomenal opportunity there, but it won't come without some struggle for sure. Yeah. And do you think it's going to be possible or easy for American or European brands to get into and stay in that market? Because you probably know what what happened to Uber when when they tried to to get into yeah. China. I think it will be very hard unless it's done with um, joint venture. I think that's going to be the only way that it, that it would really work, which is just fine with us. Um, I think, quite frankly, for a U.S. company to go into any other country that is um, doesn't have basically a virtually identical infrastructure, whether it's cold chain storage or supply chain, um, you have to have a, an on-the-ground partner anyway. And so looking at India or China, um, Malaysia, all of those places really do need an insider to help you along the way. And that's where joint ventures really do, do come into play. So my, you know, my, my belief is that uh, any company that we would work with that would want to foray into those places, you'd, you know, we'd want to set up a joint venture with somebody who has great strength already there. Yeah. So partners on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Now, if we take it back home, what's hot right now and what are your predictions for the future? Like what plant-based food products are going to explode in the next five to 10 years, say? 
That's a good question. You know, in, in 2007, when I first started in this space, um, Daya didn't exist. Miyoko's Kitchen didn't exist. Impossible didn't exist. Beyond Meat didn't exist. Uh, while while Field Roast existed, they hadn't even invented their, their chow cheese or their sausages yet, right? So to think forward, I, I can tell you that the plant-based is doing just fine, but it's still a fraction of the market. And where where 9% of dairy uh, is now plant-based, meat is about uh, 0.25% of the industry is, is plant-based alternatives. And so we see a, a, just a massive opportunity there to really change um, that industry as those products improve, and they will continue to improve. The good news is there's enough competitors challenging in this space that every single year better and better products come out and innovative ones too. I mean, you know, jackfruit wasn't even on the market probably three or four years ago. And now, you know, there's a couple companies selling jackfruit. Uh, we don't have to have one single panacea that's going to solve all the meat issues. We are, we like to eat very diverse foods. And so the idea that uh, one company is going to rise up and shine and really dominate the market just isn't going to be the reality of it. Uh, we see it being as, again, all ships rising, lots of food options. And in what I see in 10 years from now is probably two or three times the number of companies in this space um, with a bigger footprint, bigger availability. One other thing, the, the things that I think is probably most important, and I think it was probably led by Dean Foods, is at some point Dean Foods says we're not a dairy, a, a cow company. We are a dairy aisle company, right? We're a beverage company. And so that allowed them to bring in a product that still, you know, met a latent demand um, that otherwise wasn't part of their current infrastructure, namely having a bunch of cows producing milk. We're seeing something similar happening in the meat industry now where they're, they're really kind of starting to redefine themselves, not as meat companies, animal meat companies, but protein companies. And once you make that shift, you realize that meat is just one way of getting protein. But if you just change that one little word from meat to protein, it opens up just a massive, entirely new set of opportunities uh, that otherwise weren't even part of people's um, strategic portfolio. And so my... My belief is that within 10 years, you're going to see a shift uh, from some of the larger corporations such as Cargill or Tyson and General Mills and looking towards other forms of protein as being just as acceptable, just as viable and just as meaningful for the human population as um, animal based counterparts. So that's the one side. Uh, the other is, you know, we've got this moonshot for people who aren't willing to make the adjustment to plant based uh, for whatever utilitarian re utility reason they see fit. Um, we want to meet them where they are. And so for those who just refuse to give up meat, we're going to bring you meat. It's just not going to involve eyeballs and tails and intestines. It's going to be just meat. And so that's where the clean cultured products really kind of come into play. It's a moonshot in that a lot of technological innovation and, and discovery has to happen. But once it's done, you're talking about a 70,000 year old industry that will be transformed forever. It'll never return. It'll become a time where eating an animal will make zero sense, given that nobody's eating the eyeballs and ligaments and everything else. What they really wanted was just this piece of meat. And if we can produce that meat that's clean, pathogen-free, uh, relatively safe and healthy, by all means, who wouldn't gravitate towards that? I think that, you know, the reality is people eat meat despite of the complications that come with it, uh, where it should be the other way around. You know, really, we eat meat mostly for nutrient value and a little bit of utility that's undefined. 
Um, if we can supply all of that and get rid of the ethical dilemmas and everything else, that's just a win. So we're really taking a dual track approach on this and saying plant-based is going to continue to grow. It's changes that are happening today. Every single day, new innovations are happening that are making plant-based alternatives better. And in the background, we've got this other track, which is we are going to actually produce meat and we're going to do it in a really phenomenal way. Uh, and somewhere in the middle, by the year 2050, they'll probably meet in the middle, right? So it may be 50% plant-based, 50% cultured, clean meat. That's just fine with us. We don't really care what the spread is as long as animals are taken out of it. The environment doesn't suffer and we can actually feed our species. And uh, well, since you were calling it a moonshot, um, and I'm really into science fiction and what's happening right now with space exploration, do you think that making the meat in a lab like this, that's probably one of the best ways to, to take it with us once we start actually looking towards colonizing other planets and yep. going, going up there. Well, you think about it. I mean, if right now we grow plants, you know, if you want to grow a tomato in the wintertime, you put it in an environment that's perfect. You give it its water and its nutrients. You make it, give it that perfect environment and it knows what to do. Now, if you're on Mars, my guess is you don't have a lot of things that you're going to be able to deliver to those plants over and over and over again. I don't know about, you know, cells, but if you give them all of the things that they need, they're going to do what they do best, which is grow and divide, grow and divide, grow and divide. And so I believe that there's probably something there where, you know, certainly 50 years from now to be able to just have your own cellular meat growing and reproducing is probably going to be able to happen. I think it's, you know, we're not that far from it. If you think about the the things that have happened in our food world in the last 50 years, where factory farming kind of really started in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, and the innovations that have happened there, well, if you take that same innovation and you apply it to this type of technology, you're going to get there really, really fast. And I think that you're going to end up having a food source that's quite clean, quite good, and quite transportable. So there's your moonshot for you. Yeah, yeah we should totally get Elon Musk involved in this as soon yes, as we can. Agreed. <laughs> Somebody's got to eat. So um, you, you already mentioned that, uh, that in the past couple of years, we've seen the big food companies start showing some real interest for plant-based foods and either coming out with their own lines or acquiring existing smaller plants. So is that all good or do you see any potential downsides to that? From where I said, it's all good. Um, you know, again, share of stomach, price, taste, and convenience. And we can get taste worked out. I can, my wife can do that in the kitchen, right? She can create products that are really, really tasty, but it doesn't mean she could get the price to work. And that's about scalability. And that's where a lot of these larger companies come in is that they can really scale a product, scale its production. But without the distribution, all of this is for naught. And so where these companies come in, and it happened with Dean Foods and White Wave, is they gave them different distribution. They, they, they plugged in a liquid substance that wasn't cow's milk that was, you know, soy milk, but everything else flowed exactly the same. And if you can partner with a company that has those infrastructures, whether that's Tyson or Cargill or anybody else, um, to be able to tie into that and, and really grow a company, I'll tell you, as consumers, we win tenfold. Uh, the animals win a thousandfold. Uh, the environment wins. Everybody wins when, when plant-based products supplant animal-based products. And so if it takes partners such as the big agribusiness players to do that, I'm I'm all on board. I think that's that's a phenomenal win. Right. So 
ethics aside, because this is probably the thing that would bother some people, the, the bottom line is, is still positive, is what you're saying. Well, absolutely. I can tell you from an animal standpoint, animals don't care who owns their corporation. What, what they want to know is, am I going to slaughter today? And uh, there's just no, no question that, you know, big corporations can actually advance that faster than us little guys. We're a $25 million fund. What are we supposed to do against titans in this industry? We're not even a rounding error for them. So we need bigger players to come in and take notice of this. And quite frankly, corporations are specifically set up to serve consumers. We are those consumers and we use our dollars to vote on what we want to eat on any given day and what we want to buy. That's a, that's a vote. Every time we spend a dollar, it's a vote. And if we go to someone like Tyson or Cargill or Dean and we say, here's a dollar, I want to vote for a plant-based alternative, they're probably going to want that dollar, right? They're in the business of taking that dollar from you. So for them to turn away and say, well, we don't touch that stuff, well, that's, that's short-sighted on their part. And even their shareholders aren't going to like that. So if there's an underserved market that they can actually in, in, increase their shareholder value or enterprise value, by addressing it, they actually kind of have an obligation to do so. Uh, the other thing that would happen is they ignore it and somebody else is going to come along and they're going to take that business. Because like I said, share of stomach, people aren't eating more. They're just deciding on what to eat. And if Cargill has a choice between only selling their products or selling what people want to eat, they should probably sell what people want to eat. And generally speaking, I think that's what these corporations want to do. It's their obligation. And that's why these conglomerates exist. Yeah, and another thing that I wanted to ask that's very related to this, uh, you probably saw the report that uh, FAIR and Share Action just put out last week, right? That yep. The investment yep. case for a protein shakeup. So it's basically yep. a group of investors that's managing funds over a trillion dollars. And they're urging the world's largest companies, largest food companies to move away from animal protein. So how big is that actually? Well, I think it's I think it's first of all fascinating. It's 1.25 trillion dollars of managed money that is saying you need to pay to pay attention to this space that our food system is broken, right? And right now we really don't have a lot of R&D money going towards this. Uh, we've got basically for the last 50 years we've had a bunch of kind of marginalized consumers shouting and screaming from the sidelines saying, you know, we need to do something different. The system is broken. Um, having major do investment dollars behind that and major influencers behind that, I think, is, is sends a great signal to everybody in this space saying, pay attention to food. Pay attention to food and the implications it has on our society and how that is going to impact our society over the next couple of years, and certainly until 2050 when we have nine to nine and a half billion people on this planet how are we going to solve those issues? And if we don't take action now, uh, the future is not going to be very bright. It's just that simple. And so the idea that um, they're calling attention to this with real investable dollars, I think, is is enormously important. So speaking of the future, um, where are we headed? Like on a global scale for you, what's the best case scenario of the future that you'd like to help create? Well, you know, I live in a, I live in a world where the future is bright. You know, there's my, my wife who's an animal protection advocate and a lot of people who are out there fighting for animals, they see a lot of suffering every single day. Uh, 
in the in the position that I'm in, I see a lot of people innovating to try to change that. And so for me, it's exciting to watch these companies work and see the innovation stirring. And I would say 10 years ago, I don't think that there were a lot of entrepreneurs out there who really thought of going into this space as a place where they could affect change. And right now it's happening in a groundswell. Um, we've got at this point, probably over a hundred entrepreneurs paying attention to white spots that where they could actually start companies. And so in a perfect world, what I see is just what I'll, what I would consider maybe crowdsourcing solutions. Um, if you look at the major conglomerates, PepsiCo or General Mills or anybody else, they're not starting these companies from scratch. They are buying companies. They do not have the time or energy to start a company from scratch to, to, to try to address a market. Um, and so they're smart. You know, they know that they could probably make a little bit more money, but they don't have the time to do it. And so PepsiCo will sit back and say, well, let's see what foods are successful. Let's get them a little bit of traction. Let's see what drinks are successful. General Mills, the same thing. Campbell's Soup. You know, they all now have small uh, innovation funds about, uh, I think Campbell's Soup is $125 million. General Mills has their own as well. Um, they are putting seed money in to see what grows. And, it's, and it really is a perfect environment uh, to allow what I see as great pent-up demand um, prosper. Uh, but we want solutions, right? And so you, you, know, you ask how I see the future. I see the future is, is a beautiful garden, really. It's really a beautiful garden that is very robust and diverse. It's not just a bunch of rows of corn. It's flower beds and all sorts of different products that really make our lives feel more fulfilled as consumers. As, who's, as a species who loves food, we should have plenty of options. And so in a, in a future, um, in my perfect world, is a future where the, offer, the uh, offerings are plentiful, they're delicious, they're price sensitive, where everybody gets to participate um, and uh, animals don't suffer and the, and the environment doesn't suffer in the consequence. Yeah, and that's a big ask, but it's <laughs> but it's I got to aim for something. You, you have to aim big, oh, definitely. Yep. And just to take it away from from foods and a little broader now, um, I had my friend Bianca on the show a couple of weeks ago, and then she's in sustainable vegan fashion. And you probably know there are other amazing brands in that space, like Vote or Brave Gentlemen, and then there's startups like Microworks or Ananas and Am. They're just doing really cool stuff with plant based leathers, for instance. But yep. my impression is that there's definitely not the same kind of money being invested into those developments. So my question mm -hmm. here would be, why is that and what can be done to, to accelerate growth in, in that space as well? Yeah, it's t they're tougher. And, and I, I love all of those companies. You know, I've worked with a bunch of them. When I was with the Humane Society, um, we really looked at all areas where animals were being abused, which was a lot of areas, food, fashion, animal testing, you know, a wildlife control. And we tried to figure out a way of investing in all of those spaces. It was very, very hard because you can't be an expert in, in, in all of those things. Um, you know, I think when you look at um, plenty of these opportunities, I, you know, I'll just focus on fashion, you know, Fashion is actually has some similar characteristics to food in that it's oftentimes a a, um, a decision that's made quickly. Um, it's one that is personal. Uh, it uh, help identifies you. And so I think fashion, there's a little bit of overlay there, but I don't know that people really take the correlation to suffering as, as they might with food, uh, for one. For two, you might make a fashion decision once every week or once every two weeks. Food, you're making it three times a day. And so when you're looking at 
kind of a market entry. You know, how does a company, what I look at when I'm assessing a company is, is what is their product migration plan and how are they going to enter the market? And the nice thing about food is you can actually dip your toe in. You only need somebody to eat one vegan hot dog a week. And if it's yours, that's a win, right? Um, it's, it's a decision that's being made over and over again. And I think with other, a lot of other opportunities, you know, fashion being one of them is it's a decision that, um, you know, it takes a long time to make that sale happen. And then when you do, it might not be a while until it happens again. And so when it comes to looking at kind of the, 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 the regularity of purchases and the regularity of influencing those buying decisions, food just happens to be an easier one for us. It also happens to be really center of plate when it comes to um, affecting animal suffering, but they all work and they're all great. You know, we look at, in our case, we're really trying to go after how can we help the most animals, but that doesn't mean the others don't deserve recognition. Um, but in our particular case, we see food as being it. But, you know, looking at alternatives to animal testing, there's a bunch of companies working in that space. Uh, fashion is a good one. Even media and film, you know, all of those areas can have great influence on on people. You look at Forks Over Knives and some of those films, they've, they've really done a great job at, at uh, behavioral change. And that's, that's ultimately what we want. In our particular case, we want to give something, uh, people something to change to, and we want it to be something that they deal with every single day. And so food is really, really important for us. And that's why we focus there. Yeah. So now just a couple quick questions to close this, Chris. Mm -hmm. For you personally, besides cheese, of course, what makes you really excited in a startup or a startup pitch? Well, I like I like entrepreneurs who have a very clear vision of what they're going to do, uh, but also are willing to be collaborative collaborative about it. You know, there's no such thing as a, a business plan that's accurate, and I've written business dozens of them for myself, and I say it's probably an. Uh, uh, an exercise in masochism, but to go back and read your earliest uh, business plans is 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 often comical, if nothing if nothing else. And and so what I really do like is entrepreneurs who are really open to the idea that you know we invest in a continuum, we adjust, we pivot, we adapt, we recognize the market. And most importantly, we don't believe too much in our own in our own thesis, right? That we have to understand that, You know, it's very easy for entrepreneurs to create the business plan that makes them feel right without actually doing the analytical research to, just, to, to know whether it's right. And so a good business person will, will reevaluate multiple times a day whether or not they're on the right track. And so I really do like working with, uh, and I say working with because we don't just write a check. We want to keep working with these companies Uh, working with them in a way that that we're all working together towards kind of the bigger goal and advancing. And so one of the reasons that um, uh, I travel as much as I do is because I, I require face-to-face uh, -face meetings with all my entrepreneurs. Um, I tell every one of them, it's easier to divorce your spouse than it is to get rid of a business partner. And so understanding that this relationship is a very long-term commitment, uh, that we will be working together. I will judge you, but we're here to help you. Um, knowing that that relationship um, can be one that's fostered into something that's a friendship, I think is very, very important for us. So that, that gives me a lot of excitement when I'm working with entrepreneurs who seem to be open to that. And if they're not, chances are we're not a good fit for them. Yeah. So next thing that's really related to this, what's one takeaway for anyone getting into or just thinking about starting something in the plant-based food space? Um, 
I say first, first of all, you know, you want to find an opportunity, um, but don't be locked into just one idea, right? Like I said, business plans change and you want to be able to adapt. And so my advice would be come up with a thesis and, and then let's beat up that thesis. Let's see if it works. And what we do with our investments right now, we try to figure out how they fit into our broader portfolio. If you think of new crop capital as a business, we're adjusting all the time. Every time we make a new investment, it changes our entire portfolio. It's like the butterfly effect, right? You know, we, we add one new company and it actually can affect every other company in our portfolio. And in fact, we hope that it does. Starting a business can be very similar in that, you know, decisions or new inputs that come in can change the entire scope. And so I think that, you know, my recommendation to a lot of entrepreneurs is really be open to how the different directions you can go. But once you know where you're heading, lock it down and, and full steam ahead, you know, full steam ahead. Just make sure you have your team behind you. I do like partners. Um, I prefer that there be a partnership there. Um, you know, we like to work collaboratively. I like to know that the entrepreneurs and founders can work collaboratively amongst themselves. And so we do like to have teams that it's not just one solo person out there, but, you know, a partnership or at least a, a, a group of uh, like-minded individuals. Right. So, what are your favorite food brands right now? Food brands. Um, well, I love Miyoko's Kitchen. Uh, the things that are in my refrigerator every day, there's always Miyoko's Kitchen. I love Kite Hill. I love Treeline. I love um, uh, Gardein, uh, Beyond Meat, obviously. Uh, the Beyond Burger, I, I'm just blown away by it. I'm blown away that, that a burger tastes like the Beyond Burger. Same with Impossible Burger. I just can't believe that that we have that now and 10 years ago it wasn't even close to it so i'm really excited about uh individual products inside certain brands i don't necessarily buy one brand uh, i like certain items from one brand and so i love field roasts chow cheese that's we'll always have that in the refrigerator so i'm a comfort food junkie i eat pure id so i love sandwiches i love anything that's easy breezy and fun for me to make i'm not a chef uh when my wife leaves I can just as easily poison myself as starve to death, depending on what I make. But if I stick to the easy stuff, um, uh, mostly around comfort food, that's always a win for me. I grew up in the uh, in the outskirts of Philadelphia, and Philly cheesesteaks were always my favorite. So I'd say one of the things that I did back in 2007 was work towards getting a vegan Philly cheesesteak, and we've got it. So I'm happy. And speaking of which, finally, going for lunch or dinner, what's your favorite spot and your favorite vegan dish? Oh now. my gosh, that's a loaded one. I mean, I, you know, I, I ride the subway in New York City and as I'm going uptown or downtown, as I pass different restaurants, I think, well, if I pop out here, I'll be able to eat this. And I know exactly what I'm going to get before I get there. So, you know, I love by Chloe. Chloe Casarelli is just a phenomenal person and her products are great. Terry is another restaurant in New York City, which is totally appeals to my comfort food needs. If I want to go upscale, you've got the candle uh, restaurants and in, in the in the Blossom restaurants and each one of those I usually take the most comfort food item on the menu and I've never turned down vegan ravioli I can tell you that so if they've got that it's going to end up in my pie hole sooner or later cool I, I will take note of that Chris <laughs> okay good great so good. look first of all man thank you so much for what you are doing and thank you for being a huge source of inspiration for my show and of course, thank you so much for joining me today. 
It's my pleasure. I look forward to doing this again sometime. Uh, as products get better, I'd be happy to bring them back to you and we can discuss them. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to that. Cool. Very good. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Okay, and that brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Plan-Based Entrepreneur Show. I don't know about you, but for me, it was definitely one of those where you want to go back and listen again just to make sure you're not missing anything. But of course, we're taking all the show notes for you. So to find those, head on over to theplanbasedentrepreneur.com slash show slash episode 006. And that website is also where you can subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes or updates on what's happening. As always, if you have something you want to share or a suggestion for the show, reach out to me via email on jerry at theplanbasedentrepreneur.com or on Twitter at pbentrepreneur. And until next week, stay amazing and keep on creating a plan-based future.